Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and uh, we're continuing our conversations uh, about fantastic sounding uh, shows on episodic streaming platforms. And today I'm so happy to be talking to the team on Westworld. Uh, We're joined by Sue Cahill, who is the supervising sound editor on the show. Hi, Sue. Hi. Uh, Keith Rogers is the re-recording mixer on the show. Hello there. And uh, Benjamin Cook is the sound designer and the re-recording mixer on Westworld. Hi, Ben. Hey. And obviously, uh, we're coming to you remotely because we're still on coronavirus lockdown. Um, We're recording today using the Dolby On app, so I'll give a little shout out. Dolby On is a free iOS and Android application, which is designed to make recording and live streaming uh, sound and image with unparalleled audio quality incredibly simple using nothing but your device. Dolby On empowers creators to make their statement with amazing sound quality anytime and anywhere. All right, so that was my plug for Dolby On. Um, And thanks everyone for joining us. I've been really excited to talk with you guys about Westworld. I was a fan of the show since episode one. um, And, uh, you know, I think that this particular season, we're here to talk obviously about season three, um, really took the show on some exciting new directions. Uh, lots of interesting possibilities for sound design and mix, I think, got opened up by by leaving the parks and going out into the the real world of what I think is a 2057. Um, so I'm I'm thrilled to be here with the you know you guys the core creative team on the the sound of the show to to talk about it. Uh, Keith, I wanted to start with you because you're 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 an old Westworld hand at this. Uh, you've been you've been with the show since the beginning, since the since the first episode on on season one, and and in fact, uh, you won an Emmy for the season one show, The Bicameral Mind, for mixing. So, can you? T- I just wanted to start with you. Like, has the has the approach to sound um, changed over the course of the three seasons? Um, you know, has has the approach evolved at all over the course of, of time with the show? Uh, yeah, naturally it, it evolves just because of the content of the show. Um, but uh, it's been the same creative team on the, as far as the producing side mainly, uh, driven by that. And um, But the sound, yeah, se- season one, um, we just, I mean, HBO still just broadcasts in 5.1. Five. Five so the show's all, always mixed in 5.1. But um, starting in season two, we mixed in Atmos as well. And season one, we went back and did Atmos after the season was over. But season two, we mixed natively in Atmos going straight from the beginning. So we, uh, we mixed season two and then this, this season in Atmos right from the start. And we were monitoring the Atmos the whole way and um, using that as our master, really. And then... So that was a little different than season one, where we mixed completely in five one, and then went back later and tried to figure out how to make an Atmos version of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the, the the show's you know obviously gone away from horses and and wagons and western type stuff to this season was more futuristic and you know kind of Ben created a whole new landscape and or you know soundscape I should say for for this season. So. Um, yeah, just kind of incorporating that, but the the process of the creative process has been the same with the with the with the producers. I've worked with them for quite a while now, so they have a they have a system of, of the way they get get the show shaped the way they want it. Well, Benjamin and Sue, I'm kind of curious. Um, you guys are new to the show this season, um, I believe. You're both multi uh, Emmy Award winners uh, yourselves. For uh, you know, Susan, you won for Black Sales, as did Benjamin. And Ben, you also won for the Pacific and for Westworld. So you've been part of the HBO family for for quite a while. Um, but I'm curious, you know, um, how you guys tell me a little bit about the workflow. Um, uh, you know, Sue and Ben, how you des- divide the editorial duties, um, and then how that material gets to the stage, and and Ben, how you and Keith work together on the mixing stage. Do you want to take it, Sue, or should I? Say? <laughs> <laughs> I think we can both take it. But yeah, Ben pretty much. Uh, headed up the effects side and I headed up the dialogue ADR side. And um, Ben started earlier than I did with the sound design. He actually, he could tell you more about that, but he started cutting in-house with the uh, at the cutting room 
So, um, so that was really handy because he was able to work on scenes ahead of time and get it in the sequence, get it to the picture editors ahead of time so that everyone can get, you know, familiar and comfortable with the, the sound design early on, which I think was, was really handy. And so, uh, as Sue said, yeah, I started early. We would, I would cut, uh, key, a lot of the key sequences I cut, uh, and then, of course, designing all the various vehicles and uh, the robots and, uh, you know, the atmos- there's a lot of atmosphere, atmospheric things, too, that we were created for the show. So, you know, the show was uh, obviously different because we're set in, the, in reality in the future. And, you know, the show's always really relied heavily on sound to tell their story anyways. But, you know, we had a kind of a different overarching aesthetic that they wanted to achieve uh, this season in particular. Jonah um, had this uh, idea of right from the beginning, he talked about this. uh, He didn't want an ideal, he wanted an ideally dystopia, but he he didn't want it stark. He wanted it very um, rich and textured, but he had this idea that, they had um the noise reduction noise cancellation technology had gotten so advanced that there's nothing abrasive or loud out in the world everything was very soft and peaceful and that was like the overarching theme for everything from all the ui things to the vehicles uh, the voice you know the voice of the world itself so that yeah. was you know, that was the uh, the idea. He used terms like mellifluous, um, mellifluous. <laughs> it's even hard to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, this, everything this, is very uh, every ple- everything is pleasant. It's everything is is pleasing. There's no noise pollution. There's no busy horns. People aren't stressed. Everything is is generally positive. You know, everyone is their lives have been made better. So it's, um, that's a really, that's a really interesting aesthetic. Cause I, I had made notes when I went back and took a look at the show again, they're like, there are no phone futzes in Westworld. <clears throat> you know, everything, you know, when they're talking to each other, even through their devices, um, the voice is very present, almost it's as if it's within their own mind, uh, which I thought was, a, it's a very interesting psychological construct. Yeah, he had this this idea, this sonic coherence or a, a, a euphonic consonance. Those these were all terms that he used, <laughs> and, and, you know, for this for this world. And you know, that's again, that was our overarching principle with everything. So, yeah, which makes it all the more powerful when the order completely starts to break down in the, the in the latter episodes, right? Yes, exactly. That was the that's the twist. Well, tell me a little bit about the process of mixing in Atmos. Um, um, I presume Keith, it's you and Ben on the on the board. Um, wh- how big of a, of a room are you in? What are you putting in the overheads? Like, how are you guys using the Atmos? Well, it was really awesome having Ben on the show this season. Ben's super talented, and, and it was really cool having him designing the show as the show was was being cut and. Um, so a lot of the cool atmospheric design ideas and kind of where we were putting some of the, that stuff really came from Ben's design. And then the other uh, dialogue-type stuff, Walla group, that kind of things, we kind of, we kind of like going back to the theme that nothing was um, abrasive or, or, you know, sound just kind of was there, but it was pleasing and stuff. We even had that approach with background wall, uh, that kind of thing, where it was there, it was present, but it was never like annoying or, or, or really super present. But, um, you know, the, the main thing, I guess, you know, we scene by scene, depending on what was going to happen in the scene, we would use the Atmos to try to help tell the story. And, um, the show is, is pretty much music from top to bottom as well. So we, the music is such a huge part of the show it really creates mood and themes and for each character and there's all kinds of reoccurring themes and stuff so ben and i and and with sue's guidance too we had to decide what we were going to play what you know the music is thick so we had a we had a lot of you know 
we had to get stuff to play without being just pushed loudly, you know. So there's a lot of a lot of tricks to make it all feel feel like it's playing well together. And um, you know, like I said, the music is is kind of spread throughout the show. I spread the music into the overheads a little bit all the way all around us. Ben's doing the same thing, picking certain ambiences to put up in, in the overheads, pulling the music off of the off of the front a little bit helps us with um, you know getting more stuff playing up in the front speakers because you know you only have so much room to get everything in there with the score that, that that's that thick and big. The score was cool this year. It went away from some of the more the more classic kind of Western themes that we had into um, Ramin's score. It was very synthy this year, and very a lot scary. of you know kind of heavy heavy droney stuff. So that stuff eats up a lot of dynamic space so that's the challenge of getting everything in there and we uh our executive producer jonah loves music and he likes it loud so that's a, that's always a challenge i mean we're, we've got so much stuff in there trying to trying to you know fight for space that a lot of scenes we're just you know maneuvering to play what's important at the moment you know and i would do a lot of things where i'm panning things maybe farther back in the room than I normally even would just to give us just for the space, you know, just so we can hear it, just so we can hear things play over, over the music. So in particular, so, uh, and then there were certain scenes where there was a lot of visual camera movement to things. And then we, we always, you know, kind of use that as a, as a guide to win. And then of course, if they'd done anything in their temp track, uh, that was a great, an easy way for us to uh, really open it up and and spice it, spice that that section up by moving stuff around in the room itself. Well, Ben, I wanted to ask you. Um, I think you said previously that you were uh, that you were embedded with the picture cutting team for a while. Is that right? Yeah. So, and then and then you're obviously tell us what this room that you're in. This is your this is your your sound design studio at home, right? It's a 7.1.2 Atmos. I was an early adopter, very early on. Uh, have grown with it. Uh, I love it. I, you know, I love the fold downs. You know, I'm a big fan of the the format. Uh, you know, what can, what else can I say? <laughs> I think the integration in Pro Tools has, uh, you know, it's so much better than in the beginning, and now it's it's very seamless. It's very easy, uh, and it's just getting better. You know the app is you know, one of the best things Avid's developed in you know ten years, and so it's you know there's a lot of great things that they're doing. So, so you were able to um, to design and build a lot of your effects elements um, in seven point one point two, but what what happened when you kind of embedded in the picture cutting room? What was the setup that you had there? I mean, typically I would give them you know it was a anywhere from stereo to five one you know kind of setup, but I would usually give them, you know, bounced sequences, kind of like what we do. I, I use the same approach when we when we cut on films. You know, we're we're doing things, and then it, we, it gets bounced out to them, and they embed it into their tracks. And then, or when you do a temp dub, you know, they're using those stems. You know, and you might have you may give them the full five one, but they usually don't cut with that. They usually just take two or three tracks, and you know that's what they're using to cut against. So it's very similar kind of thing system and then i would be constantly conforming keeping up with the cuts and then uh that would all get turned over to the uh the sound effects editor uh you know once once we started the editorial process itself and all the mix all the mix mixing things that i did within uh the sessions all carried forward so my effects editor uses the same my template, my mix session, so and it all carries forward, and that's pretty much how most people are working these days, especially on the big movies. Uh, you, you just there's, you know, you, you want all that work to carry for, 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 carry forward. So right, I'm curious. I, you know, you guys have all had feature film experience as well as obviously a tremendous amount of television experience. You know what? My two cents is that it seems like the quality expectations for TV have risen to the level of feature film. But I'm I'm curious 
I mean, as you're approaching a new project, do you think about it any differently, knowing that it's going to go to episodic versus uh, versus theatrically anymore? Uh, the only thing that, for me, the only thing that you have to consider is is time and, and budget. I mean, that's really it's scale. It's it's scale. That's really what it is. So you approach it the same. You just have to scale it differently at, at different times. So. Um, you know, if I can get, if I can convince them on a television project to let me start early and start feeding them material, uh, I'll, you know, I love working that way because, you know, you don't want to be reinventing things uh, on the fifth day of your, you know, on the last day of your mix or whatever. So, uh, and that can happen <laughs> if you don't, if you're not prepared. So luckily we didn't have any of that this season. I don't remember anything that fell apart. I think it all... They were familiar with everything, and uh, other than the, you know, the thing that did change a lot was music. Actually, Jonah would really, you know, he was always changing a cue or two. So, uh, but in general, I'd worked really closely with uh, Chris Gallard, the music editor, in the beginning. I had mock-ups, and I had a pretty good idea what the music was going to be doing. Ramin had supplied a lot of their music, or they're using a lot of music from the previous seasons anyways. So we had a pretty pretty good idea of what, you know, where the music was going to be and where we needed to be in relation to that. Sue, so talk, talk to us a little bit about the process and kind of the, the, the timeline. Now, I, I'm presuming that this wasn't kind of a, uh, a situation where, you got episode one, and you they delivered that to you. You finished that, and then you went to episode two, and you finished that, and then you went to episode... Like, it tends to all get into a jumble, but sort of how... Yeah, we kind of had all the balls in the air, always yeah. juggling all of them, yeah. But and there are some advantages to that. Like, when you're shooting ADR, it's nice to have several shows, episodes queued, so when you bring in an actor, they can knock out multiple episodes at once. So that helps with the time efficiency the actors like that so that they don't have to come in as many times so there are advantages but also yeah it can be a little bit tricky trying to um, keep all the balls in the air keep all the juggling how long were you guys on the on the show and and what was a like what was a what was a mixing schedule for a typical episode See, well, each episode, I think, was we had a little bit different mix schedule on each one. The, I think the first one, the first episode, we spent the longest. We had the most number of days on the first one, just being, you know, the, the first episode of the new season, and Jonah directed that episode. So, um, so we did spend the longest on the first, and then the ones in the middle had a little bit less time, and then the last couple episodes were pretty complicated, so we had a little bit more time on those. We actually um, mixed out of order. We started with episode four first, and we did four, three, or four, yeah, four, three, or four, two, three, one, I think. But then our playbacks were in order, one through eight. But our playbacks were in order. So so, uh, Sue and my crew had to prepare everything. Uh, in advance, we would do kind of a pre-mix pass. We'd spend our first three days getting through the show, kind of me and Keith's pass uh, on the show. Uh, and then we'd move to the next episode. And right. we'd do the same thing. Internal playback while we waited for the visual effects to be updated. And once we got all the visual effects, then we had another pass. So there were, there were multiple passes. We had to kind of... And about how many days would you spend on the mixing stage um, for each? Well, you said they were different, but I'm kind of curious what, what the range is. And also, what you know? tell me a little bit about the stage where you mixed. Um, was it a big feature room or was it a, a near field room? Or I think the average was, I think the average was six, right, for most episodes? Five or six, depending, yeah. But, yeah, and then a couple of them we went, we might have done eight on the first one. There was a lot of, not just full days, it's interesting because like they were saying, we mixed out of order. We had to, uh, we had to mix the first four or five for press. So they were kind of finished, but not completely finished. And we were still waiting. Maybe music wise, we might, we might've been waiting for, um, live strings at times. So then we'd get that and I'd have to replace that in the music and things like that. So they were always a work in progress until one needed to be delivered. And then we started having to get things done. done. So then we, we kind of, started getting getting things done in in order um but we mix at uh universal uh dub two 
and um, it's a full theatrical Atmos stage, um, medium size. It's a it's a large television stage, really large tele television stage. We have a really big backfield. We can probably get I don't know 20. twenty five people comfortable in here if we need to. Um, full uh, theatrical Atmos. We mixed in home Atmos for this, but um, uh, yeah, very comfy. Uh, we mixed on um, on the icon, the Avid icon, still in here. Um, do you want to know about the equipment? <laughs> that we have or actually ben didn't though <laughs> ben actually worked on yeah his, uh, i brought in my s3 and a dock and my pad because i like to i use the and just you just you I just set, set it right, right on, on top of the top, console yeah and yeah <laughs> so instead of instead of an icon on top of a harrison it was an s3 on top of an icon <laughs> <laughs> that's the new that's the new old school new school way you got to have the right tool for the right job very uh, lots of horsepower it's um it's on the universal lot Great place to work. Great engineering support. Our recordist Rick Maris the best. Yeah, it's a fantastic room. It's one. It's probably, uh, I would dare to say, it might be the best sounding TV room in LA. Um, you know, they they did a lot of tweaks to that. It used to be a film room actually. It used yeah. to mix films in there, uh, and then when we did and black you, sales, they really updated. Yeah that room for us and they installed the atmos and they did a beautiful job so and it's still it's still a very great sounding very comfortable room for the clients and and for for us so and it's uh we found that it, it translates really well besides you know the dolby atmos folding down so great which we're really we love that because we can while we're mixing in atmos we're able to you know check our five one and check a two track in real time just so we can see how things are folding down and we love that about it but the the room itself here is is um is like ben said very comfortable well well designed and um it's, it's just a great place to work do you do you guys have conversations as you're going because you know you you you're you're mixing natively in dolby atmos um but you you have to be aware that a whole lot of people are going to be listening to this through the tiny speakers on their televisions as well. So, you know, what's, are there accommodations that you guys make for that? Or how do you, how do you approach um, this kind of this, the fact that people are going to have very different experiences and, you know, some people are going to watch it on their phones, on their earbuds, right? That is the, the challenge now is, you know, there's not just one master really, you know, there's, so the way we kind of accomplished, uh, mixing for multiple uh, scenarios is was in the print master. We're, we're checking as we're mixing as well. You know, we're checking low end on, on the smalls and stuff. But when we, uh, when we print mastered this year, we started by, by print mastering the two track to see how that, how things were translating to that. And that would be a good indicator for us to, you know, for things that maybe we needed to tuck back or low end or things that weren't translating correctly. And then we could go back in and punch that in and fix that and the 5.1 as well because they're all being generated through the, the, the Dolby Atmos. So we, we were kind of updating everything at, at the same time and able to check things and make it so almost all three, all, all the different versions all sounded great and they all worked as well. We didn't have to completely remix for stereo or any of that. So we're constantly kind of checking as we go, but that, that, that way we print mastered this year was very uh, important because, you know, you don't want, you don't want streaming devices to get a compromised two track. You know, there's so many that are actually an actual two track that they're using. It's not just a rendered file from the uh, AC3 file. You know, they're actually using it on some devices too. So it's nice to know that your two track works and it, it sounds great. And then if they're listening in a AC3 setup or at home and they're listening in 5.1 or, you know, the, the box is going to do its fold down for that as well. But knowing that we had a printed two track was real important to us. That, that Sue, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, obviously performance on any show is really important. And but in Westworld, you've got a lot of characters who are delivering a lot of exposition through the dialogue 
and uh, and the performances in the show are just incredible. So uh, you know, I don't want you to throw anybody under the bus, but can you tell tell how were the production tracks on the show, and how you know, tell us a little bit about working with the dialogue on this season. Well, the dialogue was actually quite challenging on um, on this season. There's a lot of location work. There's a lot of locations, a lot of new locations, a lot of exteriors. We're in downtown. A lot of times we would hear traffic. And again, in the future, we don't want to hear traffic. So it's getting rid of that. It was a lot of noise reduction and a lot of cleaning up. Um, you know, it was, an, it was a lot of work. And like you said, the, you know, the, they were quite particular about performances. And so ADR was always not always an option. We would get it as, as a choice, you know, to have as an option, but oftentimes we would go back to production. So that meant doing a deep dive into production alts and, and cleaning up the noise reduction to really save as much as we can because they did get pretty attached to, to performances. But yeah, the, the dialogue was quite challenging, but we had a, a great dialogue editor helping me out. Jane Bogle, she's fantastic. So, um, but uh, yeah, so there was a lot of ADR. Um, I think voiceover was interesting this season. We had several episodes that had a lot of um, voiceover. And again, they are uh, particular about performances on that. And voiceover tends to be, I think, rewritten often. <laughs> so it's like, it's never quite final. So that changed a lot. And during playbacks, it was a lot of going into finding a different takes, even though they had signed off on what they wanted. It was like, let's make it better by switching out this take. And so it was a lot of digging into fine alts and, um, and sometimes manufacturing words that weren't there, but we had to change it. So yeah, and it's I'm thinking specifically about Caleb, his character. There was a lot of, and you know, he had these sort of virtual, um, virtual kind of therapy sessions with uh, uh, with his old war buddy. We were deployed to Crimea, Russian Civil War. Nothing civil about it. The U.S. was officially on the ground for humanitarian aid, but. My unit was there for something else. Yeah, there was a lot of really, really present voiceover. And then, of course, you get into the later episodes, you have a, the voice of Rehoboam as well, right? Right, right. Yeah, so, um, yes, Caleb had a couple episodes with voiceover. And, and again, they were going for different performances. So sometimes it was like, well, do we want him to be speaking to, like, if he's speaking to his therapist, Dr. Green, or is he really speaking to Dolores here? And so we had, um, you know, so there was a lot of discussion there. And um, yeah, you were mentioning uh, the Rehoboam voice, and then there was the Solomon voiceover. So in episode seven, that was a big story point, and there was um, auditions for who should be the voice of Solomon. There's also a lot of auditions. Here's another. This is a little bit side topic, but um, the voice of Insight, right? That was yes. that was a big new character this season, and that was the voice of the future. Right. So what does the voice of the future sound like? So it's it's a computer voice, but computer voices have progressed where they don't sound so they don't sound robotic. But yet there's something about them that is they don't sound like Siri. They don't sound like Siri, uh, but there's something about them that just sounds that sounds like a computer voice. A little bit unnatural, something that just pulls your ear a little bit sideways and makes you, you know, turn your head. There was a lot of discussion on what this voice should be. And at first, Jonah was really set that it should be a computer voice. So I pulled all these choices from different text-to-speech programs that we have now, like Microsoft and Google and Amazon Polly. And I had a whole bucket of computer voices, and none of those seemed to work. And then we went down the road of getting auditions from Loop Group. And it was getting that voice that was, again, pleasing. It should be a pleasant voice, but something about it that's a little bit, that's computer, that sounds like a computer. So it was in the performance. So there is an extensive search there to find the right voice. And then we finally did and, um, and then tried to get the right performance from them. And then I left it in Keith's trusty hands to do the treatment that they wanted to, to, do, the, to do our insight voice, our voice of the future. Yeah, that was there was a bit of a, a challenge in in the treatments because I, I know you guys were talking about earlier about 
putzing the dialogue and all that stuff. There's so much, that was real. There's all kinds of different treatments going on. And going back to the, um, you know, what does the future sound like? Everything is supposed to sound a little better, you know, like, like the things that were in Caleb's, a lot of his voiceover and stuff and the things that he were, was he hearing, he, it was like in his ear, earbud in his head. So it was supposed to be sound great to him. And uh, how do you sell that to the audience still that it's communication, but it's in his head. And so we tended to go less, more subtle with the futzing and, and that kind of stuff this season. And, you know, we did a, we did some, you know, some kind of treatments on the voices to make them a little off, a little computerized or, you know, different things. So there's all, there's quite a bit of different treatments going on, depending on who's talking, where it's coming from. If it is it a computer, is it coming from the voice of God, all kinds of different stuff. So we had a hologram treatment. Hologram. There was hologram. Whenever someone showed up in a hologram, it was a slight treatment. Um, you know, cause they're always what we, what we know now is what we hear like, Oh, that's what a computer sounds like, you know, in 50 years, is, is it going to sound or are we going to have refined it to where it's almost undetectable? So, um, that was kind of what we were trying to play with. But sometimes in the story, if you don't feel some kind of futz, it doesn't feel right. Cause you're like, well, where's that voice coming from? Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. So you have to, you have to treat it very delicately. Yeah. One of the things that I, you know, I'd love to, you know, I, I took a lot of notes. I, there's so many sequences that, I mean, we could spend all day talking about some of the fantastic, you know, sound sequences in the, in the, in the show this season. But I think that one of the things that I really appreciated that you guys did was you really use sound design to give subjective experience a lot, especially with, with Caleb's character. Um, he's, you know, we learn one of the things I, that I think that Westworld does really well and that episodics do really well when they're, when they're great is it gives you information very slowly over time. It in little drips and drabs. And one of the things that we learn about Caleb through these flashbacks of his experience to the war, um, those were a recurring element, obviously in, in season three. So I'd love to, to hear you guys talk about sort of how you approached um, constructing the sound of, of Caleb's flashbacks and kind of giving the audience the experience of what it was like being in his head. Well, a lot of times for Caleb, it was no sound. I mean, a lot of time things were, were uh, very, or, or, or a very muted treatment. So that was kind of the, the big differentiate uh, differentiation for most of the flashbacks for Caleb in particular. Until we got to episode seven and then we started playing sound for his yeah. flashbacks yeah well i wanted to, yeah i wanted to ask you about that because i made a note specifically in episode seven you spent a lot of time you know in crimea um and and but it it turns out not to be crimea so it's it was really interesting kind of the sleight of hand that you guys were doing with the sound design the quants had a strategy engine looking at the data and feeding us names Never easy taking life. The Limbics helped. They dulled everything. Emotions, memories. Confirmed. Confirmed. Yeah, exactly, because we were we were seeing everything through Caleb's memories at first, and he thought that he was in Crimea when in fact he was he was in LA. So we had some we had Russian voices, you know, in the towns. Through our loop group, we had native Russian speakers, so that that was part of the atmosphere. And then, yeah, there was that that mislead there when we we find out he had been uh, reeducated. Yeah, we did a lot of transitions going in and out of scenes into Caleb's things that kind of told you we were going into that subtly, you know. And um, that's the that is the challenge with this show. There's so there's so many things going on and there's so many uh flashbacks and stuff and you got to remember what treatments you've been using and and how you know so it's there's never doesn't seem like there's many scenes when you're just kind of cruising on a dialogue scene there's always something going on so it it, it really keeps us on our toes and remembering that we're used you know hey remember last time we had we had treatment on that so you just have to make sure you're tracking the show too which is it's a challenge. This is a, it's a it's a heady show, and you really have to track with it, you know. Well, another another character that you you spend a lot of time, I think, in their subjective experience is William. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about the 
you know, William hallucinates a lot in this season of, of the show. And, and specifically, I think there was some really beautiful sound design in episode six, um, which is the, you know, the mental hospital uh, where, where William is. So tell me a little bit about about the how you approached um, being in that character's head and kind of constructing the sonic environment of that hospital. Well, Jonah had mentioned in spotting. Well, it wasn't even in spotting. I think it was an after spot note that he's like, I want uh, to sound like 2001. <laughs> it was Space Odyssey when when um, the character is. Uh, hearing things in the spaceship and there's like these weird voices uh, like cries and and moans and things and they're very atmospheric and so we you know we we watched that was kind of their our inspiration and we watched that uh, and then I created some elements that were you know similar hyenas and voices and you know really treated distant movements groans and creaks and and things of that nature and then sue shot a lot of group as well for that and she yeah. could tell you all. just weird weird stuff you know someone just whispering in a creepy way or laughing or um you know talking to themselves but just to try to have a lot of very variation and then um and then these guys here placed it all around the room for us. Right. Again, another great place where the Atmos came into play. We were able to, you know, fly a lot of that stuff around the room, around the listeners, just to envelop the, the, the people into the, into the story more. So envelop the listener. Yeah. Yeah. Another great yeah. scene for the, for the Atmos was that first scene in episode four, when man in black is hallucinating. And there's just you've got the dialogue just surrounding you there all over, and that was that was a really fun scene because we had voices in production that were, you know, slowed down, pitched, sped up, and pre-lapped, post-lapped, and you know, Keith really had fun tossing it around the room, and and uh, and we had ADR there too of Dolores, and um, that was just a really um, really cool psychological scene. I know what's real. I know what's real. William? I know you're not fucking real! I know you're not real! I know you're not real! And a lot of that, we were following uh, the lead of the picture editor, what they had kind of designed. And then we were just, again, expanding, adding more elements, moving things more in the in the space. Yes, the picture editor gave us a great roadmap. Um, so that that really helps. And then, you know, and then it's just the having fun, fine tuning stuff on the stage. Yeah. Uh, you guys were also given some really fun opportunities in episode five uh, when Caleb ingests the the genre drug, uh, which kind of induces him to go on a, a trippy uh, kind of movie uh, odyssey. Uh, and I, I, I can just imagine sort of the fun conversations that you guys had about that. Obviously, the music, um, uh, Ramin Jawadi's score is is doing a tremendous amount of, of, of great work in, in those sequences, too, to kind of communicate, you know, we're in, we're in a shining sequence now, or, you know, some of the various genres that we're, that we're in. But what, what did, uh, 
what were you guys doing from a dialogue and a sound effects perspective as well to kind of communicate that that idea of shifting genres that Caleb was was perceiving? From sound effects point of view, a lot of that was me staying out of the way. <laughs> to be honest, it's like let the music do its thing. But there was, you know, the the of course the the uh, rideshare sequence. You know, there's a lot of vehicle movement and guns, gunplay, and that. So it was a lot of trade off. So there would be huge sections where music was driving it, and then you'd shift gears, and then the sound effects would drive it. Um, and it's really, in the, like Keith had said earlier, is really uh, the transitions between those elements. Those were the important areas, and those are the areas that you know we spent the most time on, for sure, going in between the, the music and the, the, the sound effects. Yeah. yeah, we actually had a lot of ADR from um, Caleb, too, from Aaron Paul. Um, they just they wanted to feel like we were inside his his head. So all of his breaths, he redid he did all of those. There wasn't much in production to begin with, but he redid all of those, all those slow mos. You know, that's all performance. I mean, that wasn't that was him doing each and every one of those, which was which was quite a bit. But then you really felt like you were with him. We were in his head. There are some great moments for Maeve uh, in this in this season too. Uh, from a sound design perspective and a mixing perspective as well. I'm thinking about there's that great sequence in episode two when she figures out how to overtax the simulation and get it to break down. What's the point of this little exercise? Yeah, again, that was something that uh, we spotted early on. They, you know, they had some ideas, and really, it was uh, me throwing things to them, and uh, you know, a bit of back and forth of what that was going to end up. I think, um, you know, once we got into the actual editorial process, it was pretty much designed and laid out, other than the robot. uh, when Maeve takes over Harriet, the Harriet robot, because that was visual effect, and uh, there wasn't much of that uh, initially. So, Harriet, Harriet is the the drone robot that she takes over. Uh, the takes drone over. robot that's kind of has the circular kind of round disc head. So there's yeah, three yeah. three mechs or three robots in the show. There's George, which is Caleb's worker buddy. Then there's Harriet, right. which was this kind of disc headed similar uh kind of technology and then there was the big mech uh, i also love the moment uh and f- for mave uh when she's walking through uh and I-, I think it's singapore and she's short-circuiting all of the machinery as she goes uh uh looking for the i think she's going to the morticians that was a very that sequence really developed over time they kind of changed the story of it uh from the initial from the the from the first script and then what they shot, uh, you know, was a little bit different. And then uh, they tried, they they wanted to use a song in there at one point. And uh, so that one was a, that was a bit of a struggle actually. (laughs) That was one that, that ended up being, we went clear to the end, I think. And it was, you know, there was a lot of back and forth on what that, you know, how that should, should, should play out. So that one took a bit of work and there was a lot of Keith had did a lot of yeah Keith had done a lot of work with you know people walk people walking by and there's conversations and Sue recorded a bunch of uh eight group things for me and gave them to me and then I processed them to process them so they were digital and they kind of went through this transformation of being like maybe televisions or radio things to like more uh digital phone conversations and then even at one point became like the mechanic the the sound of machine the the machine mind behind all that so yeah, i just remember we kept work that we worked on that s- sequence for quite a bit 
we kept going back and coming back to it and trying new things. And um, so I think we finally got it to where Jonah was real happy with it. And um, yeah, nothing's nothing small in this show. show it was sure. certainly a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, just a ton of things going on and a lot of little details. You know, you'd walk by a little guy with his noodles and you'd hear that and then you'd, uh, or a cart or screen that would would blast on and off and there was yeah there's lots of things to hit so and they wanted to hear it all <laughs> there was a lot of great foley in the uh in the show this season and of course i'm thinking about mave dragging her sword along the um the uh the, the kind of the catwalk way um can you tell me a little bit about the foley uh, on the season the my foley crew is a crew that i worked with before um, on several projects. So we have a very, you know, understood aesthetic. Um, I kind of explained to them what I thought, you know, in, in, again, in broad terms, what the show should sound like. And they did a great job of coverage and, and all the things, but, uh, that sword in particular, in we, particular. Yeah, we, yeah. we went away from production on that one. We had production yeah. in there for a long time, ended up removing that. Yeah. So yeah, at the, at the final, we finally got rid of production and it became all Foley and, oh, and sound yeah. effects, yeah. We usually try to save as much production effects as we can. Actually, Jonah will miss it when we take stuff out. So, but that was one instance where he wanted to take it out. Keith, I wanted to ask, and we touched on this a little bit uh, earlier, but you know, this uh, Ramin Jawadi score, um, who, and he's, he's scored all three seasons, of the show, um, I would definitely, I would definitely call Westworld a, a score-forward show. Um, the score is very present and does uh, and does a lot of storytelling, and obviously that poses challenges uh, and opportunities um, in the mix. So, uh, I'm just curious, like, at what point did the score come to you? Uh, were you hearing rough versions early? Uh, you know, did, were you able to work with that as you guys went through the process, or how how did it? Uh, and, and how much separation did you have? delivered to you to work with the score the music's huge uh, it's um i've worked with ramin now on a few shows because he johnny jonah uses him faithfully so i worked with him before this and then you know all three seasons of westworld and his music is fantastic it's so so dynamic and it's and it's big and he puts so much effort into it and it and it has so many themes and it like you said it, it kind of carries the show that's the, the style of the show so you can't avoid it. That's the way it is. And um, so the challenge is, is the music's big. It's full sounding. It's usually got orchestra behind it or, or big synth and stuff. And I guess the biggest challenge is to really create, create dynamics, create a dynamic mix where it's just not, you know, top to bottom music full on, you know, and it's a challenge. And um, so we really, we really maneuver and, 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 are working the score quite a bit just to make sure you can, like you said, there's so much, you know, big sections of dialogue, but there's score behind it and all kinds of story elements going on. Um, I find it really fun music to mix. It's really uh, neat to, you know, all the different elements and the themes. And and, uh, Chris Caller, the music editor, is fantastic. And he's done a lot of work before it gets to me as far as getting things in the right place and getting people kind of ready to expect what they're going to hear when they get the final mix. Um, when it comes to me, I do get separation, a little more stem layout, um, you know, strings are separate from percussion, low percussion, highs, all kinds of stuff, guitar, whatever the score has going on. And then my goal is to separate some of that stuff. So it plays and it's not just all slammed into the, into the left right so the more we can spread it out in the room you can really feel the music and hear the different elements so that's really what i'm doing is i'm spreading the music i'm doing an overall level control of course but um really trying to make the music feel um even when it's low it's still supporting the scene it's there and um and not just playing it so loud that you can't hear anything else it is a challenge i mean ben saw going through that it's like man the music is just going 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 you know so it's it's hard at times to to create lots of dynamics when you go from one big thing to another but um you know there are there are scenic big scenes where you can 
you know, the music is featured and it's beautiful and we don't play anything against it and just let the music take over. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's, it's definitely, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a style and an aesthetic and, and in some ways it kind of reminds me of sort of the star Wars way of, of, of scoring. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a Nolan brother thing. They, 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 the Nolans like music and, um, and it's a great, I'm, it's a great style. They, they've, they've nailed it. So, and is Atmos a tool that you use to kind of carve out some space for yourself with the music? Sue and Ben can back me up on this. It's, you know, our first pass we go through when we really try to get things, we know when the music's going to kind of drive a lot of the scenes, you know, I'll spread stuff out as much as you can, put stuff in the overheads, take it off the front a little bit, and you really use the surrounds to help us keep the size without, you know, overall level. And then, you know, a lot of times we go through and we think, you know, the music's pretty good and we'll play back and we'll get the general note of raise the music. So it, it's, it, it becomes, it becomes a challenge because at that point you've got a lot of delicate balances already right, right there. And we've got to up it up, you know, up the music and, and still kind of keep the integrity, integrity of the sound we were trying to accomplish, you know? So it's definitely, it's not set it and let it go ever on Westworld music. That's for sure. Well, one of the themes that uh, that we've been talking about on this season is is how COVID nineteen um, has affected folks and their work, and and I I'm aware I don't think you guys were quite finished uh, with Westworld when things started to kind of uh, go into lockdown mode. So, what uh, how did you guys deal with that challenge of trying to finish a show when everything's kind of shutting down around you? Well, I'll just say a little at the beginning here. They it was interesting. We were going along just fine. Um, I think we were in episode four and actually Jonah and was kind of one of the first ones coming in starting to say, Hey guys, we need to prep for this, you know, this virus that's coming in. I think it's going to be a big deal. And his company Kilter had started to implement, um, practicing getting people out of the office and started to get remote editing going on. So we're like, Oh, this is really happening. How, how's it going to affect us? And we, kept going on the stage here with starting out with beginning of um being essential and being guys wearing you know it was at the beginning we never it was new for everybody so we you know it was at the beginning phases of people wearing masks and how many people are going to be in the room and um we kind of went i think through episode five is that when when we started deciding to do a little bit more remote i think sue at that point was off the stage and we made a an effort where it was just the mixers and our record us on the mix stage and everybody was remote at that point. And we started doing remote playbacks through Comcast. Um, no, not Comcast. What was it called? Clearview. 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 Yeah. yeah so, Clearview. So on that, uh, yeah, box. yeah. And then we had a, we'd have a kind of a, a, uh, old fashioned, um, phone call where we'd have everybody on the call to talk over notes and, and they could they could get a feed of our mix real time with picture and they could hear everything we were doing so we were able to do fixes that way and and so we started doing the remote thing that way and having i think we at times had 12 15 people watching the playback listening to the stereo fold down um and then they would get back on the conference call and we would uh spend all day on the phone <laughs> yeah and we'd get, you know, we email, email us notes and then we would, uh, we would do remote notes and, and prioritize to the biggest things. And then normally we would have another playback to, to play back all the things. But it was really a challenge because we were, we were going along fine. But um, having the technology that we have now, like Ben, at a couple episodes later, Kilter decided they didn't want as many people on the stage. On stage. <laughs> so we had Ben mixing remotely and Ben's got a great room at home. So that really worked out where he could be still mixing and he, he could send me his session and we'd make adjustments. And then when there was notes, I'll let you guys talk more about it, Ben and how you did it, but he would do his notes at home and then send us a revised session. Then, and I would play it here, play it back through the clear view. They would hear it. Um, then, we print master here. I'd print master here. It was just at, at that point, it was just me and my recordist in the stage and everybody was remote. 
and um, we print faster and do notes and and you know still do the five one and two track print master pass with the clients on the phone. So it was it was a, definitely a challenge. I never was on the 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 receiving side of the Clearview, so I didn't know exactly what they were hearing. But Ben and Sue heard it, and you know there was. There was dropouts and problems with that occasionally, right? You know, it wasn't perfect, but plus it was just two-channel stereo, right? Yeah. Yes. And you know, sometimes people's internet strength would cause dropouts and things like that. But we were adapting. We were trying to figure out a way to get the show finished. But besides that, editorial-wise, like Sue, you could probably talk about how you had to finish the rest of the season doing remote ADR and wall and all that, right? Crazy. The uh, the editorial side was fine doing fixes from home. But we still had a significant amount of ADR to record, <laughs> and no one could go to a studio to record it. So every all the actors were doing it remote, and you're kind of at the mercy of their technical expertise being able to record on their phone. Were they just would they just would they just go into their go into their closet and record lines into their iPhone and send them to? That's most of it, yeah. And we might say, you know, and then we would. There was a lot of back and forth, like, "Well, listen to how this sounds. Is this going to work?" And sometimes I'd say, "Well, we'll talk into the clothes, you know, like <laughs> have more clothes next to you, and not don't talk into the wall." And so there was it. Just everything just took longer because there was a lot more testing and going back and forth. But yeah, a lot of remote ADR. Um, the clients actually set me up with one of those Clearview boxes at home. And so that's how I I was able to basically drive these ADR sessions from home, where I would send them picture and audio through the Clearview. I would send them beeps, and then they could record to picture. Although everything I received was just there was no time code; it was all wild. So I just had to manually sync every clip and hope they named it such that I could find it. The naming was all not always wild. you know perfect. Um, so things you don't want to have to depend on actors to do for you, right? Well, they've got a lot to think about, um, but they should be focused on performance, without a doubt. Not on not on not on file naming. Yeah, the biggest challenge though was that we hadn't recorded our last our last episode of Loop Group yet for show eight, which was kind of a massive episode. Well, that's a big riot scene in L.A. The big riot scene in L.A. That was all done remote. I think I had like four hundred cues of of group for that. And we had to do these remote sessions where we were kind of on a conference call like this so that we could communicate and rehearse. Um, but then everyone is recording separately on their own. So I gave Keith a lot of tracks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that was the biggest group session I've ever had. That is amazing. What a crazy story. But Sue did such an amazing job. It was, it was about how do you get you know, normal, a normal group will have a bunch of guys in the room and they're all kind of reacting off of each other and getting that kind of that. But she did, she was somehow able to get all these individual tracks to play off of each other. And these, you know, these group actors and it was, it was, it was a huge undertaking by her. I don't, I don't, she did such an amazing job. And I mean, we, we use all of it and, um, obviously we used a lot of, uh, Ben's sound design crowds as well. I mean, Ben kind of created the size because it's hard to do that with individual microphones and individual people. But we really used a lot of the Walla for the to feel the more walk the the, the buys and and more the dis distinct voices that you want to hear at times. But the mass size I think came from a lot of the sound design. But the the group the group added so much life to it, you know, because. You can only get so much with a with a with a, a, a an effect crowd. Uh, the group really brought life to it and made it feel like, like the people were right there. You know, to help. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to ask one last question of each of you. Um, if you could just tell me, like, one what's it may be. A, I'm sure there'll be an odd choice, odd, odd unexpected choice. But what's what's your kind of one favorite of your sound moments in the in the season? Uh, a particular a particular scene maybe that when it comes up in the playbacks just makes you really kind of happy inside about the work that happened. Who want who wants to go first? Also, I'll go first. Common people that the, the, that first sequence in in episode one the the Dolores escapes. It's just that song is so great and you know it's just fun to 
have somebody in the back seat getting out, you know, getting killed and getting out of the car and moving around. So, I mean, that was, uh, for me, that was probably the, the most fun. And it's a, super memorable because of the song. It's a, you know, it's just a fantastic song. And uh, I don't know if it's ever even been used in a show before. And this is great. It's, it's, it's uh, that's my favorite, probably my favorite, most memorable. I loved a lot of moments like common people and stuff in episode one. And there's some other uh, seven was a, a really great sounding episode. There's a lot of fun stuff in the whole battle between uh, Dolores and Maeve and them fighting. And that was super cool. I liked a lot of that. Um, I like, I like personally, I like every time Ed Harris is on camera. I like, yes. I like his scenes. I just love that guy. I think he's such a great actor and I love his character. I love the, I love the scenes with in the ward with all, all the different versions of him. I thought that those were just fun to mix having his voice, you know, five times or whatever it was. Um, there's just so many epic moments. Um, but yeah, I guess the Ed Harris stuff this year was just fun for me. I, I enjoyed doing that. That sound design, that opening Ed Harris scene in episode four always just stands out to me. It was just so well done. And then, yeah, like you said, that other Ed Harris scene where it was just a whole bunch of man in blacks from various points in time. Fantastic. Well, everybody, thanks so much for coming and, and doing the show. I, I've been looking forward to this because I'm such a I'm such a fanboy for, for Westworld and to, to meet you guys and be able to talk about the fantastic sound work on the show was really a treat. Keith, Sue, Benjamin, thanks for coming on and talking with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was fun. Well, this is Glenn Kaiser signing off from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection podcast. Please uh, uh, join us again next week uh, when we're going to be talking with the uh, the team behind Mindhunter. Um, in the meantime, go back and watch Westworld again. It's fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Uh, see you next time.